This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we're focusing on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. There's a new nominee for Undersecretary of the Navy. President Biden has tapped Eric Raven for the position. Raven is currently the majority clerk of the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. In that role, he's responsible for over $700 billion of annual defense and intelligence spending. Since the departure of the Navy's previous undersecretary in April 2020, there has not been a nomination or confirmation. The Air Force has discharged 27 people after they refused to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. The deadline for service members to get vaccinated was November 2nd, but thousands in the Air Force have either sought exemptions or refused to comply with the mandate. None of those 27 personnel who the Air Force removed had requested an exemption. The Naval Forces Central Command is starting operational testing for a new sailboat-style drone. The Sail Drone Explorer is an unmanned surface vessel and part of the Navy's initiative to integrate unmanned systems and artificial intelligence into its fleet operations. The Sail Drone vessels use machine learning to enhance maritime technology while also using solar energy to support the service's sustainability goals. The U.S. Space Force is turning two years old this month. Congress created the service in 2019 to operate within the Air Force. The staff of Space Force is tasked with establishing a fully functioning headquarters, transferring forces into the service, and developing military space capabilities. My guest is Lieutenant General Nina Armanio. She's the director of staff at the Space Force. General, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. You know, I just mentioned your title, Director of Staff. You're the first one for Space Force. Explain your role. My prime job is to synchronize the staff. Uh, We write policy, procedures, and it's all in an effort to uh, bring together our headquarters uh, to uh, review any issues that are going on, uh, bring uh, relevant courses of action to General Raymond, our Chief of Space Operations, for his decision. Uh, But what's unique about our role today is that we are almost two years old. Uh, We are still uh, quite new and growing staff. Um, And so part of what we're doing in the Director of Staff is continuing to grow the staff from hiring and uh, placing people into the correct roles and responsibilities and uh, writing uh, policy, getting business tools that'll help us all synchronize uh, better in a, in a more uh, digital way. And uh, that is, that's a unique difference between where the Space Force is today and my other fellow directors of staff and the other services who are much more mature than two years old. So why create an entirely separate service for space? What's been the value added in the past two years? I think the value added in the United States Space Force is, uh, it's, it's actually very uh, clear to me, um, the threat in the space domain has been accelerating. And uh, the creation of the Space Force is a recognition that the threat exists, the space domain is no longer uh, free, uh, We it, it no longer a uh, a a domain that we can operate freely in, I should say. And uh, we 
uh, have been created to not only continue to provide exquisite capabilities from space to the joint force, to all of our brother and sister services, um, but also to protect and defend that domain because uh, actors like Russia and China are uh, actively working to threaten that domain. How far from Earth is the Space Force's domain? Are we talking just low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, or beyond? We're uh, actually our area of responsibility, and, and uh, technically it's United States Space Command's area of responsibility as a command and command. Uh, it begins about a thousand kilometers from the Earth's surface, that is low Earth orbit. That's the home of uh, of our satellites that uh, provide intelligence, uh, reconnaissance, surveillance, also satellites that provide weather information, uh, among others. That's low Earth orbit. Uh, we operate in medium Earth orbit as well, which is about uh, 20,000 kilometers uh, above the Earth's surface. That's the home of GPS, which everyone benefits from, their uh, position, timing, and navigation data. And then uh, geosynchronous orbit is about 37,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. That's the home to our most strategic capabilities, our uh, strategic missile warning satellites and our strategic military communication satellites. But the uh, capabilities of, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of our operating environment today, but as uh, activities and commerce uh, begin moving to the moon and beyond the bounds of Earth's gravity, our operating area and uh, the area that the United States Space Force needs to organize, train and equip our forces to operate in, that will extend beyond geosynchronous Earth orbit. You know, General, creating a new service within the Defense Department is a huge undertaking. I don't need to tell you that. And you mentioned, you know, the challenges you're, you're facing and continue to face with uh, staffing. What other challenges have you faced and are currently facing? We, we certainly have, uh, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily a challenge in, uh, in staffing. It's, it's just kind of part of the process. You know, uh, you, you cannot snap your fingers and put uh, 700 people on a staff. Uh, you, you know, you, 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 that's just not possible. There's a hiring process and we're in the middle of it. We have almost 300 people now on the headquarters staff here in the Pentagon and uh, we're on our way to about 688 people. You compare that to other offices. I know of an office in the Air Force uh, under the Secretariat that has about 1,200 people just in one office. And our entire service in the Pentagon is only gonna have 688. So the challenge is going to be, how do we remain lean, agile, and mission focused in a bureaucracy where uh, other services can just throw people at a problem uh, and we're gonna have to uh, stay focused on the mission and be able to operate with agility across the staff here. That's, that is a uh, challenge that we're well aware of that we are uh, facing today. And uh, that we, uh, we, we're learning the tricks of the trade, if you will. We're learning what it takes to operate with agility in the Pentagon and, and uh, in this bureaucracy.
All right, World General, we're going to take a quick pause right here, and then we'll come back and continue our conversation. Coming next, we continue speaking with Lieutenant General Armanio. Stay with us. Welcome back. My guest is Lieutenant General Nina Armanio. She is the Director of Staff at the Space Force. General, I want to ask you about norms of behavior in space. Uh, Chief of Space Operations General Raymond said in an op-ed recently that what some countries are doing in space is, quote, dangerous and irresponsible and cannot be ignored. What is Space Force's role in addressing that effort? Our role is to work with uh, the entities that are defining uh, norms of behavior. So uh, uh, OSD policy in, in this building has, in the Pentagon here, has taken the lead. Uh, the Department of State has a role. Uh, we certainly have an interest from a space perspective. Uh, I, I think you may have heard General Raymond say in the past, it's, it's kind of like the wild, wild west out there uh, where there's really only one law written many years ago and uh, hardly uh, any norms and certainly not any international norms of behavior. Uh, Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, gave us five norms with which to live by uh, from uh, professional behavior and, and uh, no long-lived debris uh, from uh, operating with uh, professionalism and uh, safety in our trajectory and safety and approach. Uh, you know, th these kinds of, um, you know, relatively uh, simple rules and, and should be uh, easy to follow by all uh, spacefaring nations. And are you uh, working directly with allies and partners internationally? Allies and partners are certainly part of the discussion. And uh, yes, the Space Force is working with allies and partners in this, for sure. It, really, because it benefits all of us to have norms of behavior. And, and, and from a military perspective, it's important because then we'll know what's off nominal. We'll know what's not within a norm. And then we can better understand how to deal with a behavior that is that is uh, not normal and, and, and bad actors will be able to call, be called out uh, quicker and uh, you know, with more precision. And that helps all of us. And General, the, uh, sorry, General, I wanna ask you about what critics call the overclassification of space programs. Because if you can't display your capability, you really don't have an effective deterrent. Do you agree with that? I have heard both sides of this argument. And really, at the end of the day, uh, certain pieces of information are going to have to be classified. Yes, I know that we have overclassified a lot of uh, capabilities, but really, deterrence is in the mind of the beholder. It's in the mind of the adversary. And keeping some things classified will keep the adversary guessing, uh, revealing uh, other capabilities. Uh, can benefit deterrence uh, as well. But when it's in the mind of the beholder, uh, you know, it's, it's really more important to understand what Russia and China are thinking uh, rather than trying to declassify everything and be able to show all capabilities that we have. There, there's certainly some value in the guesswork. Are there any new or unique approaches to acquisition that you're using to accelerate new space capabilities? 
Uh, we are working very closely with uh, the Department of the Air Force. They, they today have uh, the role of space acquisition. We have a, new, uh, a newly structured command, the Space Systems Command, run by Lieutenant General Gutlein, who has a, a, a fantastic experience. His, his entire career, uh, of course, has been acquisitions, and he just came over from the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, we, what we're trying to do is design our uh, processes to be more uh, streamlined, and we're asking for more authorities, uh, to be honest, from uh, Congress and, and others to uh, give the Space Force more of a streamlined uh, uh, decision-making process so that instead of going through all of the steps that are outlined in the DOD 5000, which is the acquisition reg, um, instead of going through all those steps that we have some streamlined authorities that we can use, much like the National Reconnaissance Office has. And what about the Space Development Agency within the Pentagon? How are you working with them? They're going to be joining the Space Force here uh, this year, and so we are working uh, closely with uh, Dr. Derek Tournier, who runs the Space Development Agency. Uh, they have, uh, the way I look at what they're doing, uh, I mean, this is, just, this is just the way I characterize it. Uh, they're trying to hack commercial practices to bring uh, more uh, nimble uh, capabilities and more nimble processes to the Space Force, which would be another uh, way of accelerating acquisition. Uh, they're very key to what we're talking about when we say we, we need to build resilience into our architectures in space, because resilience, a resilient architecture is layered, it's hybrid, it's diverse, and um, one of those layers will be what Derek Tournier is working on, um, that is the, the transport layer in low Earth orbit. So uh, they're, they're crucial and key to what we're building here in the United States Space Force. General, is there a possibility of combat in space? And are you prepared for that? I would say that no one wants war in space. No one wants to fight in the space domain. Uh, and we're preparing, uh, unfortunately, because of what we've seen, we've seen in uh, countries like Russia and China, we're preparing to protect and defend our exquisite capabilities and, and uh, the, the amazing information that we can provide to our joint warfighters from space. That's why the Space Force exists. That's why we were stood up to protect and defend that domain. No one wants war in that domain, but here's another thing. The United States does not need to fight in space in order to have effects in the space domain or effects that will uh, benefit the space domain. The United States can respond in any other domain militarily, and we can uh, uh, pull the levers of national power that uh, don't have to be, it doesn't have to be the military lever of national power to affect the space domain. Could the Space Force send people into space or will that just be NASA? Today, that's just NASA. Uh, we do we do get this question a lot, and and it's fun to think about uh, a future that is like Star Wars. <laughs> but I have to tell you that uh, today we have uh, certainly enough challenges uh, just protecting and defending, uh, designing architectures that can be resilient, uh, that are within the bounds of gravity. So, for the foreseeable future, 
no guardians in space. All right, well, General, happy birthday to the Space Force and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Semper Supra. Up next, there's a rise of authoritarian regimes using digital surveillance tools. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the White House is doing to limit access to U.S. technology. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is concerned about the rise of digital surveillance by authoritarian regimes and is leading a global effort to clamp down on access to American technology. The effort will create a code of conduct for the U.S. and its allies to coordinate export licensing policies and increase control when technologies are exported from the U.S. Jennifer Hillman is a senior fellow for the Trade and International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. So what's the real problem here that the Biden administration is trying to combat? So the issue has been that the use of all kinds of digital technology, I mean, that includes surveillance technology, censorship over the Internet, uh, the ability to use artificial intelligence to process all kinds of data is effectively being used by authoritarian regimes to surveil, repress, and manipulate their um, their own domestic populations and foreign populations as well. So again, gen generally referred to as digital authoritarianism is what they're really worried about. And what's been the real impact of U.S. companies providing China or other authoritarian regimes with these technologies? I mean, can't China create their own? Well, China is creating a lot of its own technology, but but again, we have to go back a little bit in time to figure out how did China become such a large producer and creator of a lot of this technology. It was done on the backs of a lot of American and other Western technology that made its way into China. Some of it legally, uh, where companies went ahead and invested um, and started producing in China, and their technology then got transferred over to their joint venture partners or others in China. But a fair amount of it was either just flat out stolen and or forced to be transferred over to Chinese companies. So a lot of our technology made its way into China. And then the Chinese companies used that technology to become huge, big, you know, very competitive, very expansionary companies. I mean, Huawei and ZTE in the telecommunications area, High Vision in their surveillance camera area. So a lot of the Chinese companies basically were built on the backs of Western technology. Nowadays, you still have Chinese companies that are still highly reliant on a, a, a lot of the Western technology, most especially for advanced semiconductors. So there is still pockets of high tech that the Chinese cannot produce themselves. They have to rely on imports coming in from the United States, Europe, uh, Japan, and other Asian countries. So do you think the Biden administration's plan to limit exports of American technology to China really will make a dent in China's human rights violations? Well, that is clearly the hope and the expectation. And I think the Biden administration is going about it very intelligently because they're trying to do this, not just the United States controlling the technology, but again, working with you know Europeans and others to try to create a network of countries that would control the same technologies, that would control shipments to the same end of entities. So again, I think that that is the hope and the goal. And, and again, coming out of 
for example, this summit for democracy was was a pact that included, you know, the United States and and Norway and Australia and others to join together to say commonly we're going to go after um, controlling the technologies that can be used to do this kind of surveillance uh, that is creating all of the problems. You know, I wanted to ask you about that summit for democracy that took place earlier this month. China and Russia were not invited. What was the purpose of that meeting? Well, clearly the purpose of, of the summit was to do a couple of things. One was to basically bring everyone together to try to come up with a common agenda to strengthen global democracies and democratic institutions. It was really organized around three basic themes. I mean, the goal was to try to come up with real action plans to defend against authoritarianism. That was one of the goals to fight corruption, and thirdly, to promote a respect for human rights. So the idea was to bring a, together, again, governments, NGOs, private stakeholders, private companies, to come up with clear sort of action plans on what are we gonna do to address kind of these three goals. And to me, you saw two real commitments coming out of the summit. I mean, one was a commitment by the United States to spend on what is referred to as the Presidential Initiative for Democratic Renewal, $424 million to support independent news outlets, combat corruption, aid activists, you know, advance technology, defend fair elections. So again, American spending to try to promote democracy and respect for human rights abroad. The second thing that came out of it was this area of export controls. Uh, export controls and human rights initiative, again, designed to combat this digital authoritarianism that we've just talked about through greater export controls of technology uh, that can empower surveillance states. And again, this is a compact with the United States, Australia, Denmark, and Norway, with the hope that others will join and, and become part of this uh, initiative. All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much. We'll continue to watch and see what happens. I appreciate you being on the program. Terrific. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, we're on Twitter at GovMattersTV, and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers 
through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.